0: Amen, amen. As you sit down, you can open up your Bible to Romans chapter one. We'll be in verses eighteen through thirty-two today. Romans chapter one, verses eighteen through thirty-two. If you're just joining us, we've started a series in Romans that I uh, trust will last a long time. Uh, I don't know how long, but it will. It will be a long time. Romans is uh, deserving of a long, in-depth study, and so today we're in Romans one, verses. 18 through 32, if you don't have your Bible with you, don't fret, or if you're wrangling kids, it's no big deal, we'll have the words on the screen behind me in just a moment as I read it. But before that, let me just recap. Over the last few weeks, we have talked a lot about the gospel of God, the good news that God saves and God reigns. But today, I want to introduce you to the anti-gospel, to the bad news, to the dark If the good news of the gospel is God saves, God reigns, the bad news of the anti-gospel is we rebel, we reject. And you can feel a hard turn, both in content and tone, from the verses that have come before in chapter 1 to these verses right here. You know, we've been talking about this need that we have, that we desperately need something only God can give, which is righteousness, right? We're born into this world unrighteous by nature, and only God can make us righteous. And I have to admit, when we start to look into the bad news, and these next few chapters are going to be full of it, we're confronted by something that we would rather not talk about, which is sin. We'd rather not talk about brokenness. We'd rather not talk about evil. We'd rather not talk about what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong. We'd rather not talk about sin at all because as we do so, we find out that we are more and more desperate for grace, that we are more broken than we would have cared or wanted to imagine. And so I'm going to read Romans 1, 18 through 32. And then afterwards, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. The reason we do that is that we want to give thanks that God hasn't left his people in silence, that he's spoken. And so we respond, thanks be to God. You're welcome to join us in that. Let me read Romans 1, beginning in verse 18 through verse 32. The words will be on the screen behind me. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Evil, covetousness, malice, they are, they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous degree, decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some passages are a little bit harder to say thanks be to God after, right? You feel that, I feel that too. And, and when we're preaching through Scripture, it's easy for us to want to gloss over the hard places. But there are hard places, and this is one of them. It, it immediately uh, puts us into a conversation that culturally just is off-putting, is really taboo at this point, which is the conversation around what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad. What is lovely and what is not. And so just know, even as we enter into this passage, part of the weirdness that we feel is that we feel like we're stepping on ground that we shouldn't talk about. And so I want to walk through this passage, and I want to identify three problems that are ours. They're our problems, okay? Our problem as humans, it's humanity's problem. So let me give them to you, and if you're taking notes, these might be good to write down, because I hope that they'll be a good navigational tool for navigating what can feel like a really complicated passage of Scripture. The first is we have an identity problem. We have an identity problem. And this identity problem is rooted in an idolatry problem. So this identity problem that we have is rooted in an idolatry problem, and it leads to an immorality problem. It leads to an immorality problem. Let's start with where Scripture starts, which is this identity problem, which is the center of our brokenness. The center of our brokenness is that we have an identity problem. And if I could just state it real simply, this is our problem. We believe there is a God and that we are him. We're born into this world believing that there is a God, but it's us. That's the center of our identity problem. Look at verse 18. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. At the center of our brokenness is the rejection of God. Is the rejection of God of saying, Listen, I know that there is a God and it's not me, but I am going to reject this God and live as if this God is me. This is Adam and Eve in the garden. It's their rebellion and their rejection. And as our ambassadors, our representatives, they stood in our stead before God. Because you might be thinking, well, Kyle, when I was born into this world, I could hardly feed myself, let alone willfully reject God. But Scripture is clear that it isn't, we're not broken by nature. We're not born by nature, rebels, because of what we have done when we're born. We are broken because of what Adam and Eve did before we were born. We were in Adam. They were our representatives. Like an ambassador in a foreign land, if they are to do something awful or evil or wrong, it's as if we have all done it because they are our representatives. Adam and Eve were our representatives in the garden before God. And when they rejected God, we all rejected God as their descendants. This rejection is characterized by an unrighteous suppression of the truth. An unrighteous suppression of the truth. What is the truth that's being pushed down constantly in a broken nature? It's that we do not belong to ourselves. That we are not masters of our own destiny. That we are not controllers of our own fate. That the throne of which the whole world is centered on doesn't find us on it. That's the truth that we're actively suppressing by nature is that there is a throne and I do belong on it. I do control my fate. I belong to me. And at the core of our nature, apart from the gracious intervention of God, is this unrighteous suppression. God screaming out in the world, you are not God. And us screaming back at him, yes, I am. I am God and you cannot tell me otherwise, suppressing what is true, rejecting what is good, hating the very one that we were created to love. And it says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by this unrighteousness suppress the truth. Then look at verse 19. Why is this? For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. This suppression of the truth is against everything that's obvious to us. The world around us screams that it was here before we got here and that we had very little to do with making the overwhelming majority of it. And yet we stand in front of it pretending as if we are God. It's like by nature we are those who would stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon and think, I'm pretty awesome. I'm pretty awesome. When we hear it like that, it seems silly. It seems foolish. But at 4.30 on a Tuesday... It seems ordinary and natural to believe that, oh, we have to hold this whole world together, that it really exists as centered on us, and it's because of this unrighteous suppression of the truth and rejection of God that the wrath of God has been revealed. We are born with an identity problem, and we have to start here. We have to start here because Paul says in no uncertain terms that because of this identity problem, we are born subjects of God's holy anger, of his holy wrath. And again, this is something we'd rather not talk about. We'd rather not talk about this because you say, hey, pastor, but doesn't it say God is love? Yes, it does, and that is true, and that truth is not diluted by this at all because just like someone who loves, you have someone that you love, and you know that when injustice is done to them, you feel something, right? What do you feel? Anger. You feel anger. Is our anger not kindled by the brokenness of the world around us, by the Flippant treatment of human life? Is your, is your anger not stirred up by human trafficking across the world of vulnerable peoples? Is it not stirred up by the genocide of the Uyghur people in China? Is it not stirred up by the kind of lack and poverty that seems to exist in our very own communities your anger is stirred and your anger is righteous when it is directed towards that which is broken you see God's anger is different than our anger because it's very easy for us to feel angry about everything out in the world around us all the brokenness and evil that we see but not to be angry at the brokenness in our own lives and yet God shows no partiality God doesn't look at the world and divorce it from us. He doesn't look at us and divorce it from the world. God's holy anger is kindled against brokenness wherever it may be found. You see, God is perfect. He's not selective with what angers him. Evil angers God. Brokenness angers God. Injustice angers God. Whether you find it across the world or you find it in the corner of your heart, you want a God who is holy and who is angry with evil because that God is worthy of worship. Because he's not apathetic to brokenness. He's not indifferent to it. And we are often angry at the brokenness of the world around us and apathetic towards the brokenness in our own lives. And God says, I love you and the world too much to divide my love that way. God's wrath is an expression of his love. His love for what is good. His love for what is true. His love for what is beautiful. His love for what is just. His love for what is generous. It is an expression that everything that deviates from that must be brought in To correct alignment with his purposes in the world because they are better. And at the center of our brokenness is an identity problem. That we are born into the identity of Adam and we are identified by his sin and failure. It becomes ours because we are in him from the moment that we exist. We were created to be sons and daughters of God. Brothers and sisters together. And yet by nature we are brought into this world at odds with God and at odds with one another. And this identity problem, this identity problem that says there is a God, but it's me, is actually rooted in an idolatry problem. And that's what the verses go on to tell us. Look at verse 21 through verse 23. It says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see, this identity problem that we have is rooted in an idolatry problem. Because that's really the story. That's the backdrop. That's the context for this active suppression of the truth. For our unrighteous condition, the story behind that is the story of idolatry. And whether you start with the garden or you look at just before the flood with the wickedness of humanity or Israel in Canaan or our lives today, you see a cycle of sin, a cycle of looking at God who is worthy of worship and saying, I would rather worship what you created than worship you. I would rather trust what you created than you. I would rather trust myself, someone else or something Above you. And this cycle that started in the garden continues throughout history. So Paul here is probably talking about this cycle and he's rooting it in the garden story. It's best to understand these verses as a shorthand, so to speak, for the cycle of sin throughout history that's rooted in Adam and Eve's sinful rejection and rebellion against God. You see, because in the beginning, God created a good place. A place where his presence would dwell with his people to reflect his purposes to the world. That's what God created the Garden of Eden for. But Adam and Eve looked at God's plan, looked at God's rule and reign, and said, we'd rather have our own thing. Not content to be in the image of God, they wanted to be God. They wanted to control their own destiny. They wanted to exercise authoritative rule and reign over all things, specifically their life. But they inclined their ear to a creature, didn't they? What creature? Tell me serpent the snake right they listen to a creature rather than a creator and Paul is referencing that story and then he's kind of taking that story and projecting it across all of human history to show that this started a cycle of worshiping the creature beyond and above the creator God who is worthy of our worship this cycle is like this we see something that we want but we know that God is holding it out from us And we say, I want that thing more than I want God. That's how this idolatry works. That's what idolatry is. Idolatry is merely giving to something or someone else what only belongs to God, which is the chief love and desire of your heart. That's what idolatry is. It's giving to someone or something what only belongs to God, the chief love, the chief desire, the chief worship of your heart. And at the core of our brokenness, the story of our brokenness, is this idolatry that marked Adam and Eve. Worship of something other than God. Rejection of God's rule for our lives and a surrender of the love of God for the love of something else. That's what idolatry is all about. And when you hear him say, they exchanged the glory of the mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, you could say, well, how elementary, how foolish, how illiterate that they would have worshipped statues, that they would have given their affections to some sort of metal or wood creation or some sort of creature who would worship an animal. And yet we haven't progressed too far beyond that, have we? Because idolatry, when it seems that obvious, it seems easily dismissed. I don't have any idolatry in my heart. I don't worship any creaturely thing. It's some animal or some figure or some statue somewhere. And yet, our idolatry is more deceptive. And for that reason, it's more subversive and maybe even more potent because it sneaks in not always through bad things, but sometimes through a disproportionate love for a good thing, right? How many of us love to work? But how quickly can our love for our vocation become an idol, a taskmaster, a pharaoh? We're no longer working as sons and daughters. We're working as slaves, right? Why? Because the idol demands from you everything And gives you very little. You see, this is how idols function, whether it's money or it's a spouse or it's a person or it's a friend or it's a hope or it's an object or it's an entity or it's a job. Whatever the idol might be, this is how idols function. They tell you that they're going to give you nothing, but if you give them everything, eventually they'll give you something. And they always fail to deliver every single time. You see, the the main difference between God and an idol, and there are many, but one of the fundamental differences is God promises that he's going to lay down everything so that you might have everything. An idol says, I'm laying down nothing, you're going to give me everything, and maybe you'll get a little. Idols never deliver on their promise. Their promise for freedom, their promise for satisfaction, their promise for joy, Idols hold out the allure. They're like a mirage in a desert. An idol sits over there and says, come over here, come over here, come over here. And when you get there, all you find is sand. And you're thirsty. This is what idolatry does. It fools us into thinking. This is why Paul says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Claiming that this thing is obvious, it became clear that it wasn't. And it wasn't at all what they thought it was. You see, idolatry doesn't just enter in and create division. Idolatry corrodes everything that it touches. It corrodes everything. I I, I don't know if you guys remember, in the 90s, if you can think back that far. Some of you maybe weren't born yet. But in the 90s, the mongoose bike was the coolest bike you could have. And I wanted a mongoose bike so badly. And I told my dad, I said, Dad, I want a mongoose bike. And I got a mongoose bike. And I rode it everywhere, and I was, I was so proud. The mongoose bike was like for jinkos, but it was cooler for longer. You know what I'm saying? And it aged better, right? And so I, I, was, I thought it was so cool riding this mongoose bike around. And it was chrome and silver, and the light bounced off of it. I mean, I just thought it was so cool. It was the best thing that I ever had. And I was kind of obsessed with it. And then I kind of grew up, went to college, and my parents were moving. My senior year of college, I came back to the house, and this is on the Gulf Coast of Texas, and it's humid. It's it's humidity all the time, uh, and there are these storms that come through, these hurricanes, and just wash everything. And so they were cleaning out the shed behind my parents' house, and I found the remnants, the fossil, the skeleton of this mongoose bike, but it had lost all its luster, all its glory. Anything that once was cool about it was completely invisible at this point. Why? Because it was rusted. Completely, utterly, totally. Idolatry is like that. Idolatry is that kind of rust that when it sets in, it begins to corrode everything. That's the deceptiveness of idolatry. Is that on the front end of idolatry, there's this whispered promise. If you'll just buy this thing, if you can just get this thing, obtain this relationship, have this job, go on this vacation, whatever the thing is, it holds out this allure. If you'll just get it, Everything gets better. And yet when you give it everything, it gives you nothing in return. It begins to corrode everything. This idolatry takes many forms. John Calvin said the heart is like an idol factory. The moment you knock one down, five more show right back up. The idol of self, I am greater than God. That's one of the fundamental idols of our age, is it not? I am greater than God. The idol of other, they are greater than God. And the idol of thing, it is greater than God right? Idol of self, idol of other, idol of thing. But I, I think, if I had to kind of put my finger on it, the idol of self is the most pervasive, probably from the very beginning, um, and certainly in our culture. The idea that selves, individuals, should be radically self-determining, completely autonomous, that you belong to you, and nobody should, should encroach upon that at all, and that every other idol is really a way of validating that idol of self. Because fundamentally, that is the fundamental belief that characterized Adam and Eve in the garden and in our hearts today, is that anything that tells me I can't be whatever I want to be right now and in any way that I want to be, that thing should be turned aside. I shouldn't have to deal with that thing because I should be able to control myself. I should be able to be whatever I want to be. It aligns with the spirit of our age. This idol of self and this idol of other is only ever jeopardized typically when it when it runs into conflict with an idol of self. That I'm for you as long as you're for me, unfiltered, unmitigated, unchanged. And things are really good in as much as they provide you greater freedom to be you. Unmitigated, unfiltered, unqualified, unchanged. Idolatry takes many forms and it is this idolatry for which the wrath of God has been levied. Because we have rebelled and rejected God. And in his holy anger, he sees that there is a fundamental problem with our life that we think is really a good thing. And out of his holy love, he looks at it and says, I cannot allow this to go unaddressed. I cannot allow this to go unaddressed. He knows that what idolatry will do is it will take everything that he has intended to be good and it will corrode it. It will rust it out. And that is what it does. Whether we know it to be the case or not, whether it functions on the surface or like a strong undercurrent, the promise of idolatry never delivers, and the further that you stay embroiled in it, the more its consequences will be felt in your life. It's been true for me. I know it has. It's been true for all of us over the history of the world. Adam and Eve had to suppress, they had to reject the truth about God before they could give their worship to something else. And our unrighteousness, like theirs, is that awful combination of rejecting God and worshiping something other than God. It's not just one or the other, it's both. It's saying, God, I don't want you, I want this. God, I don't want you, I want what I want. And I don't want you to challenge it. I don't want you to call it into question. And that seems so obvious to us. The reason it seems so obvious to us Is that there is a groove in our heart, a well-trod path that idolatry has forged and formed. And it has been walked many times. It aligns with the spirit of the age, regardless of what age you live in. Whether it's 2021 or 21 AD, idolatry is not a new thing. It is a very, 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 very old thing. And its path is very well-trod. And this idolatry problem, it leads to immorality. It leads to immorality. And this is what I want you to see in verses 24 through 32. And here's what I want you to see. This immorality problem, it's going to do this. It's going to start broad. It's going to go specific and then go broad again. And the fundamental thing that I need you to see here is that everyone who has ever lived and everyone in this room is broken by sin. Whether your sin is culturally taboo in the church or in the world, you're broken by sin. Let's look at it. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Let's let's just pause. Our immorality problem is a global, universal, and historic reality. No one is exempt from it. The impact of our brokenness, the impact of this idolatry story that led to an identity crisis is profound. We have been completely impacted by sin. And it says here that he gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. See, at a fundamental level, sin breaks who we are before it breaks what we do. Sin breaks who we are before it breaks what we do. And you've got to see this. The reason you have to see this in the flow of this passage is that if we get this wrong with sin, we will have a wrong response to grace. Because if we think sin fundamentally breaks what we do, then what will grace's answer be? Do better. Do, do more things. Do better things. Here's some power. Use this power to go do more good than bad. Because sin is fundamentally an action problem. And grace is fundamentally an action solution. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is that sin, the bad news of the gospel, is that sin has fundamentally broken who we are. That we are rebels. That we are false worshipers. That we are rebels and rejectors and unrighteous by nature. And that this then bleeds itself out. It shows itself in our actions. So broken nature leads to broken actions. Broken condition leads to broken character. Sin impacts who we are, and then it impacts what we do. So all of us, by nature, have been broken. We are unrighteous. Now, you may think that there is some sin that's out there that makes you more defiled. And there are different consequences to horizontal sin. But in the eyes of God, we all share a fundamental problem that knows no distinctiveness outside of the grace of God. We are all born broken from the start, and our brokenness is not measured by God in quantity. It's measured by quality, and we all share in the same quality by nature. Actively suppressing the truth, born unrighteous. And it says in verse 24, a hard thing for us to hear. It says, God gave them God gave them up. What are we to do with this? God gave them up. What does it mean? Because he's going to use this phrase two more times, three times total in this passage. Why? Why does it say this? It says it because it is often a part of the judgment of God against our broken actions that he allows them to run their course with all of the consequences that come with them. It is a part of the way that God works in our lives in the world is that oftentimes when we persist in rebellion and persist in rejection, God allows that to continue. He gives us over to it knowing that the consequences will often demonstrate to us just how desperate our estate is, just how desperate our condition is. You know this story. Because you've heard it before. And it's while this truth may feel hard, it may grate against you, you know this story and you love this story. It's the story of the prodigal son, right? Maybe you've, maybe you've forgotten the story of the prodigal son. This, the son comes to the father and says, give me what you owe me when you die. And the father does. And What's he do with it? He runs off headlong and he spends it however he wants to. And then he comes to his senses. But where does he come to his senses? Where does he come Pig pen, eating with the pigs, eating with the animals. He becomes aware that the consequences of his actions, the consequences of his heart have led to a place of desperation. And it is only then when he turns and comes back to the father. Now, pause here for a second. The, the father in the story of the prodigal son is a lot like God, he's a man of means, he has an estate. He has some resources, enough to where he can give this inheritance away at an early time while he's still alive. This is probably a father who could have gone off into the city. These are small communities in the ancient areas. You don't think the father heard whispers? You don't think the father heard gossip? You don't think neighbors and other people that he might interact with selling his cattle, his calves, his property, that you, you don't think that they might have said, hey, I heard about your son. Isn't he over there? He could have gone and grabbed him by the neck and said, you're coming with me. Pulled him back in, and yet he did not do that. He waited, but the moment that the son comes back to the father, and the son comes back on bended knee and says, just let me be a servant, right? The father says, never. You have always been, you are, and you will always be my son. And in much the same way, God often gives us over, to the actions that we fall into so that we come to a place of realizing that we cannot find what we desperately need and desire apart from him. And here's the good news. Just like the father who, when the son came back, the father ran out to him the moment that we turn our gaze away from the sin and idolatry that seems so appealing and so satisfying. The moment that we find ourselves in a desperate position and we turn back to look at God, we do not see the scolding finger of an angry father. We find the loving embrace of a kind dad. See, that's good news. Because nobody who was involved in the son's sin goes after him. None of his compadres, none of his compatriots, none of his friends, none of those who feasted and wined and dined and partied with him. None of them go to the pig pit, But the moment he turns back, the father runs to extend love and grace. See, God gives us over to our rebellion and rejection, not because he hates us, but because he loves us. Because he loves us and he wants us to see a reality that it is easy for us to forget always. Which is that him and him alone can fulfill the deepest desires of our heart and our life. Paul starts broad. He gives us a big problem with our morality. Which is that we're all born broken. We're all born by nature broken and that this leads to some actions. And the moment we start talking about morality... We enter into a space that makes us really uncomfortable because everybody believes that there are rights and wrongs, but it has become weirder and weirder to say that out loud. Nobody operates as if there is no good and evil, but the world would be quick to tell you that such things don't exist. Nobody operates like there are no rights and wrongs, but the world would be quick to tell you that there aren't, and yet... The Bible does not shy away in showing us what is right and wrong with us and the world. It says in verse 26, moving from the broad, which you have to remember, we are all unrighteous by nature. None of us are winning the race when it comes to brokenness. We are all equally failed and flawed. Verse 26, it moves to a specific expression of that. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for this error. How does this brokenness manifest? How does our immorality manifest? Well, it manifests everywhere. But Paul specifically targets sexuality. here. And it can be easy for us to think that Paul is just kind of illiterate. Paul didn't really know what we know about humanity and sex and moral psychology. Paul didn't really know what we, what we know now about sexual expression and identity. Let me tell you something. Paul was a global citizen living in a global city. And if you have any degree of familiarity with Rome, you know they were not bashful about sexual exploration. Rome was not a place where much was taboo. Rome was a place where in the ancient world, if you wanted it, Rome had it. Paul knows this. He's not illiterate. He's not some backward Israelite from the hills who doesn't know uh, what what uh, what a uh, global city could look like. Doesn't really. He doesn't. He's not very intellectually adventurous. Paul is a man acquainted with what Rome has. He knows who he's talking to. And so when he speaks, he speaks from a position of authority, a position of knowledge. And it's easy to look at Paul and say, look how backward he is. But in reality, he was countercultural then, and he's countercultural now. Here's what you need to hear before I dive into this. Everyone who has ever lived, including me and you, is a sexual sinner. Every single person. We are all broken from the start, and that brokenness extends to every dimension of who we are. And because of that, we are all born sexually broken. We are all born with brokenness in our lives. And Paul starts out broad here, right? He says God gave them up to dishonorable passions and the lust of their heart, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves. And then he moves to specific. Women exchanging natural relations for those contrary. Men giving up natural relations and committing shameless acts with other men. And we can't walk away from this passage. It would be easy to. It would be easy to gloss over this, to move past it, but we can't. Paul is pointing at sexual sin and he is saying loudly, sexual sin dishonors God and it's a fruit of rejecting God and his purposes for the world. All manner of sexual sin, pornography, sexual activity outside of marriage, sexual abuse and harassment, and yes, sexual activity with someone of the same gender. Paul is pointing at all of this kind of activity and he is saying in no uncertain terms, this is a picture of the kind of unrighteous actions that accompany worshiping something other than God. Now I know, because I can feel how uncomfortable you are, that this is an uncomfortable place to talk. This is an uncomfortable thing to address. It feels like we can't really talk about it, even if we believe something like it. When Paul is saying something, and he's actually going further than this, because you might be saying, Pastor, are you telling me that two people of the same sex who love each other shouldn't engage in sexual activity together? I'm actually going further along with Paul. I'm saying that the Christian sexual ethic only has room for sexual activity happening in the context of the covenant marriage between one man and one woman. That's what Paul, that's what scripture is saying. So yes, the Bible prohibits all forms of deviation from this vision for a holy and healthy sexual life. But this passage is a reminder to us of something that the church perennially forgets on this topic. That the way forward on this, the way that we course correct on this issue isn't by waging or winning the culture war, but it is by waging and winning a worship war. Because the problem isn't what's streaming on Netflix. The problem isn't what's on the radio. The problem is what's in our heart. The problem is what's in our heart. And I'll tell you, God cares far more about the real estate in your neighbor's heart than he does about the real estate in the culture war. He does. He does. He cares about what your neighbor believes. He cares about how your neighbor lives. He cares about how we live, what we love. And I'll tell you this because I think it's important that I pause here and I speak directly. For those who experience same-sex attraction, and there are brothers and sisters in Christ at this church for whom that is a lived reality. Let me tell you something. The gospel is for you. You have no unique scarlet letter in the life of this church Anything you feel like you're emblazoned with, I'm emblazoned with as well. And I know my sexual sin well enough to know that if grace can cover me, it will cover you too. And in the life of this church, there is nobody who gets to follow in the way of Jesus for which that will not involve sacrifice sexually. That's the ethic of disciples of Jesus, regardless of where your attractions or affections are. We will all follow sacrificially together. This whole church, regardless of where our desire goes, will be called to say, we're going to lay our lives down, including our sexual desires to follow Jesus. We're going to do that. We're going to do that together. And for those who feel isolated, alienated, or alone, let me tell you, let me promise you, in this church, you're never going to walk that path alone. It will not be allowed. We will not allow this faith family to be a place where one kind of sexual sin is treated differently than another kind of sexual sin. Because the Bible, it doesn't do that. And we won't either. We will not be the kind of faith family that says, that is dirtier than this. We won't be it. It won't be it. We will walk together in the way of Jesus. We we will lay our lives down together, and we will hold up one another's arms as we do this because we are all born with broken sexual desires. And the invitation to walk in the way of Jesus will involve all of us laying down our lives and sexual brokenness to walk on the grace-paved roads of God's better way. Now, let me point to something here that it's easy to forget because the next verses that come, this is where Paul wants us to not get it twisted. Okay, because the Jews, and remember, the church in Rome is composed of Jews and Gentiles. And at this point in the passage, the Jews are looking around at the Gentiles, going, you hear this? You hear what Paul's saying? Right? Because they're looking around their Gentile neighbors, and they're saying, yeah, we know where you're at. We know where you've been. Right? It's like that time when you feel a, a convicting part of a sermon, and you're like, man, I really wish Steve was here to hear this. No, God didn't want Steve to be here. God wanted you to be here. He's talking to you. So if right now, you might feel like the Jews going, this isn't really for me. It is for you. And just to make that clear, Paul is going to pan out again. Look at what he says. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now he's going to characterize that. What's he say? They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Paul is going back wide on this and he's saying this. He's saying, yeah, you think you're exempted from this kind of impact of sin's uh, brokenness on our lives? You're not. Because who can exempt themselves from this list? Who can exempt themselves from this Have you ever felt envy? Have you ever felt malice or bitterness? Maybe you feel it right now. Have you ever felt deceit? Have you ever shaded the truth a little bit? Have you ever been disobedient to parents? Go ask your parents. (laughs) The parents in the room are like, are you listening to this, right? Disobedient to parents. Have you ever been foolish, faithless? Paul says, verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, the covetousness, those who envy, those who deceive, those who hold bitterness, those who slander, those who are boastful, those who are disobedient to parents, those who are foolish, deserve death. Now, let's pause here, because what I want you to see is this. There are some sins that are taboo to us. But then there are a lot of sins that are perfectly acceptable and respectable. And God doesn't look at them and say they're different things. What may feel culturally taboo in the church or in the world, those categories do not exist to a God who shows no partiality. He looks at all of it and says it's all broken. It's all wrong. And this is important because just pause for a second. Do you think the church is more known for shouting to the world about what's in verses 26 through 27 or being a people who demonstrate the virtues that are in contrast with verses 28 through 30? Because I'll tell you what the word on the street is. The word on the street is that we're very, very loud about sexual immorality and very, very quiet about being a holy and virtuous people. That's the word on the street. Now, whether that's true remains to be seen, but that's what they're saying. And oftentimes, that's exactly what the church has demonstrated. which is as long as the problem seems like it's out there, we'll throw all the grenades we got. But the moment that we start touching things that feel like they're in here, that's when we pull back. We get real quiet about those things, and yet God doesn't and neither does Scripture or Paul, because they're signs of a debased mind, and for which they deserve the very same judgment of the things that seem absolutely inconceivable to you. I know we don't like talking about this. But the problem is, is that many have talked about it for us. So we we got to know it. Because we're not a people that just get to go out and say, yeah, whatever Scripture says, we can kind of just take it or leave it. That's not how God's word works. We have to be people who know this so that we can communicate it confidently and clearly. Because the more that we dig into this, the more we realize, while there might be horizontal consequences that are different from sin to sin, the vertical consequences in reality remain the same. Sin has broken our relationship with God, our relationship with self, our relationship with others, our relationship with the world. And the judgment is death. That's what the judgment is. And this is bad news. This is very bad news. And it's not just bad news for some. It's bad news for everyone who has ever lived. No one is exempt. The problem is universal and historic. The problem is at an identity level and an immorality level. And it is rooted in this idolatry that like a weed will spring up the moment that we stop pulling that weed to exchange our worship for God for anything else. This is bad news. We are born broken, unrighteous, under the judgment of God, condemned to death because we have rebelled against Him, under His holy wrath against sin. This is bad news. Unless, unless someone will take God's judgment for us, Unless someone will take God's judgment for us. Now, if someone would take God's judgment for us, (coughs) maybe there would be a way. Now, let me tell you what the world will do when they find out that you're broken. Or in, in accordance with their definition of it, whatever that might be. What the world will do when they find out you're broken is they will destroy you. They will destroy you, and they'll leave no stone unturned to do so. Do you know what God will do when he finds out you're broken? Welcome you. And the fundamental difference is this. In the world's eyes, only you can bear the cost of the wrong you've done. But in God's eyes, you're not even big enough to bear the judgment you deserve. And so who takes it for you? God. See, that's the good news that's underneath Paul's words about very bad news, which is that you can't even bear the judgment that you deserve, and yet God will. God will take the judgment. He'll take it upon himself in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who will bear God's judgment against sin. All the holy wrath that belongs to you by nature, Jesus Christ takes it willingly and voluntarily. No one can take his life from him, but he lays it down of his own accord. (coughs) This is good news. It's good news because it is the way that God has chosen to save us. Unlike an idol who tells you, lay your life down for me and I might give you a little bit, God says, I will lay down my life for you and give you everything. That's good news. And it's available nowhere else than in God alone. God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and this is good news not just for someone who has not yet come to faith in Christ. Though it's good news for you, it's good news for the believer who believes that if God found out the hidden and the dark and the idolatrous places that remain in your heart, He would have two cups for you—one of wrath and one of judgment. But for those in Christ, those cups have already been poured onto Jesus Christ, and that when you bring your very worst to God in Jesus, He sees the very best of Jesus in place of your. In place of your worst. And what he does is he takes your sin, my sin, and he separates it as far as the east is from the west. He buries it deeper down than the deepest part of the ocean. It is forgiven, it is forgotten because it is brought to him in Jesus. And so if you think that darkness is the place that will lead to life, then Satan is in your ear because that path leads to death. And he wants you to experience death apart from God forever. And God is inviting you to experience life with God forever. And all he's asking of you is to say, I am not God and you are. Will you take my whole life? Will you bind my wandering heart to thee? Because it is fickle and faithless. That's good news. God isn't asking you to be some sort of super moral superhero, Superman. Christ has already done that. What he's asking you to do is come to Jesus. That's what he's asking you to do, to walk with Jesus, to walk with others who are walking with Jesus. This is bad news, and I've got to spoil it for you. The next couple of chapters, they stay pretty dark. They stay pretty bad, but they're leading us somewhere. Paul knows where we're going, and I want to spoil the story for you because I don't want to leave you hanging. I'm fine with this one, fine with spoiling this story because you know it, but I pray that you believe it. God has taken the judgment that we deserve on his son, Jesus Christ. Come to Jesus. There's no more wrath once we find our life in him. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you, God, for your grace and mercy in Christ. We ask you, God, that you would continue to peel back. I know, God, when I think about your work in my own life, I I stand amazed that you have saved me. God, when I think about those who you have brought to faith in Christ, I am most surprised by me, God, because I am acquainted with what I have thought, with what I have felt, with what I have done. And yet your grace is better. Your love is stronger. Pull us further up and further into it. We pray these things in the name of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.